as we have entitled our message, The Word is Not Bound, we want to look at the fact that as individuals, our walk with Christ does not come to an end because of an illness or because of a pandemic or because of a war or even because of persecution or if we did have a hostile government. And I don't believe that our government has been hostile to us here. I didn't like when we were not allowed to meet. I'll confess that. And I harassed everyone that I could get an email on a phone number for in Montgomery. And I spoke to all kinds of people. But my thought is if it were really persecution, schools would be open and churches would be closed. If they close schools, you know it's a big deal to them. And so we haven't faced persecution. But if the church were to face persecution, the work of the church will go on. And no matter what we experience in this world, no matter the uncertainty, the work of the church goes on. And so we begin by introducing these thoughts today just by observing that life right now is very uncertain. One of the things that we already said to you today is we don't know how we'll meet next week. We may be under the trees. Today at 1130 or so, there's a thunderstorm risk. And so we're, we're in the building and we're, we're trying this. Um, I, I was going to put a loudspeaker outside to keep preaching to the neighbors, but I checked the weather after looking at the thun- thunderclouds, and I'm like, well, I probably ought not set up the electronics outside today to broadcast the message to everyone in a one-mile radius. I love, by the way, I loved, I loved preaching to the neighbors. There is no escape. It is loud, and you are going to hear a sermon. So... That was incredible. Life is uncertain. We don't know how we'll meet from week to week. We don't know what next week's going to look like. We don't know if we're going to get sick. We don't know if it's going to go away. Thankfully, the numbers have declined in our state and in our county of this threat, and we rejoice in that. We thank God for answering our prayers, but we simply do not know. And I've said over and over on Wednesday night and Sunday morning that there is one who does know. There's one who does know tomorrow and the next day and the next day. In fact, he knows yesterday better than you knew yesterday. He knows now better than you know now. He knows the future better than you know the future, and that is God. Now, during these times of uncertainty, one of the words that I think would be fitting for us to use to describe our mental state is that of stress. Do you feel yourself more stressed? Now, if you're a homeschool mom, you're probably like, I really don't notice much of a difference. I wake up, the same people are there. I yell at them. I try to get them to do their work. They want to sleep late. They don't want to eat breakfast when I say, and then they want to eat breakfast when we start English. And so your life might not be too terribly unchanged, at least during the day when you're schooling. But we all have extra added stressors, things that put pressure on us at this time. If you're a person who has other health problems and you know that you're in the vulnerable category, there's probably some stress in your life as a result of that. Some people may be angry at things that are going on. There's a a variety of reactions we could have to this. Some people, many people are scared. And while we want to be cautious and we never want to be reckless, we also remember Paul's command to the Philippians to be careful for nothing. Don't worry about this. And I think that as we consider today's Subject matter, as we finally get to the point, we'll see that no matter what we face in this world, God is with us and his hand is guiding our today. His hand guided our past and his hand will guide our tomorrow. God's hand is guiding us. He's involved in our lives because we are his people. And so some people might be very scared right now. Some people might be, have become cynical. That's a natural Winslet tendency to become cynical. To be cynical people. I think we have the corner of the market on that. And you you might wonder which of his two parents do we blame that on. And honestly, I couldn't tell you because it's a trait that between the two of them, um, they they both very, very well display at times a a cynicism between the two of them, you know, a retired police officer and the woman who had to raise Josh and Ben. You know that there's going to be a lot of cynicism in in the mind of a person who's had to deal with such things. Another reaction might be to be dismissive of it all. It just doesn't matter. Don't talk about it. It'll go away. And that's rarely how things work in in life. If you don't talk about it, I've tried that in many areas of life. It It doesn't work. Some people have resorted to unhealthy forms of self therapy. How have we seen the alcohol sales since this happened? I'm not condemning people. 
they resort to a form of therapy that's available to them because of everything else that's going on in the world. But there's a better form of help for you to be found in Christ. Some respond by making themselves absolutely so busy that they can't think about anything else. And at times, that's me. At least I've had trying to figure out how to have a church service every week that has given hours of extra duties, and it's kept me busy enough that I don't think about it quite as much. Today I want to draw our focus eventually to one particular brother who faced great, great adversity. And I think he epitomized what it means to be faithful in trials. And that is from the Old Testament, a dear brother in Christ, a brother in the Lord who is with the Lord today, a man named Joseph. And before we get there, I want to establish a principle for you this morning, and it is that God's hand is always at work even in the moments of adversity. Now, whether or not God works through us, well, that's up in the air. That's not a guarantee. God may work through me or God may not work through me. And the way I position myself in the moments of adversity, God might choose to work through me more than he would at other times. But God is working in the world today. He's active. If everything in American life and in the world comes to a halt, God doesn't stop working. You understand, according to the book of Hebrews, that he upholdeth all things by the word of his power. Is the world in existence today? God is at work. We have the threat of rain this morning around 11.30. God is still seeing fit to send seed time and harvest, causing his sun to rise upon the just and the unjust, sending his rain upon the good and the wicked alike. God is still working in the world. According to what James wrote in his epistle, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness nor shadow of turning Every good gift you have experienced in your life since all of this began is from the hand of God. God is working in your life as you wake up in the morning, as you eat the food you ate for breakfast, as you go to work, as you interact with your wife and your children, as you sit at home in the evenings, maybe on your back porch listening to the birds. I rejoice to know that so many people have spent so much more time with their children as this issue has been going on in our country. We walk sometimes, but we've been walking and riding bikes, and there are people that I never even knew lived in that neighborhood walking around with their kids. And I rejoice in that. Why? Because families are closer. By the way, John the Baptist, it was said that he was one whose ministry would turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the children back to the fathers to see families closer. It's one of the goals of the church in the world. We want to see stronger families. And this has yielded that. God's working. In the midst of trouble, God is working. God is working. The book of 2 Timothy chapter 2, to begin to establish this for you, we quoted this verse for you a couple of weeks ago. In 2 Timothy 2, 8, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds. But listen, the word of God is not bound. At the time when Paul writes this, Paul is not in a comfortable church setting. He doesn't have a pastor study like I have. He's not, you might say he's full-time in the ministry, but there was no choice in the matter because he was incarcerated for preaching the gospel. He was in jail. He was in a prison. Now, sometimes Paul was in a form of house arrest where his life was a little more comfortable. Sometimes Paul was in a glorified hole in the ground where he didn't have but room to stand up all the way. And he was chained and he had to sit there in his own stench with no freedom and no liberty. And yet as he writes this, he reminds his beloved son in the ministry, Remember this gospel that I preached to you. Wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer. They've arrested me as if I committed a crime when I committed no crime. Even unto bonds, 
But the word of God is not bound. You cannot arrest the gospel. You cannot arrest the gospel. Now, in one sense, the gospel is not bound because as Paul was imprisoned, you had a whole host of other people in the church who were not imprisoned, and they were going everywhere preaching the gospel because that's what the early church did. It wasn't just something they thought about or maybe you know, heard a message on Sunday, but this was life to them. It was, they're all in all. They preached. They heard. They worshiped. They preached. They took communion. It was the core of their entire lives. Many of them even worked with people who were in the church and those that lost their jobs in times of dearth, those that had extra would sell things that they had to provide for the needs of those who had not. That was the church. And so the word was not bound in the sense that it had gone out and there, was n- there were not enough prisons to arrest all of the Christians to stop the gospel from going out. But I want to turn over to the book of Philippians chapter 1 and consider the word of God not being bound from another perspective. When Paul is imprisoned, Paul, though he's physically incarcerated, does not cease to preach the word of God. Everywhere Paul was, you would find gospel sermons. Everywhere, in homes, in synagogues, in marketplaces, at Areopagus, in the school of Tyrannus, everywhere Paul went, Paul preached the gospel. When Paul is in jail, what does Paul do? Now, why is he in jail? We're preaching the gospel. Now, if a thief is put in jail, can the thief keep stealing? Well, he might steal from his inmates, but in some of these jails, there's nothing to steal. You're literally stuck. There's nothing you can do. Murderer might commit murder in some prisons. Dad was a prison guard in three prisons before he was a police officer. And there are times, there are times when a murderer will murder someone in prison. But usually in prison, the rate of the crime decreases. There's nowhere to get drugs. There's nowhere to, there's nothing to steal. You're just stuck in a cage, especially in this day and age. But as Paul is in prison for preaching the gospel, guess what Paul does in jail? Paul preaches the gospel. There were times that Paul's in jail and he preaches and the Philippian jailer, guess what he does? He hears, he trembles, he falls down, he begins to ask of Paul. Paul preaches to him and later that night he baptizes him. The word is not bound. Here in Philippians chapter 1, Paul says... And he's writing to one of his most beloved congregations. He loves them so much, he calls them his joy and his crown. He served this group of people at one time. He loved them. He cared for them. He longed to be with them. He thanked his God upon every remembrance of them. And every prayer he prayed, he prayed for these people. And he thanked God for their fellowship in the gospel. Look at verse 5 of chapter 1. Imagine if I or another pastor that you loved was put in jail for preaching the gospel of Christ. Wouldn't that make you sad? Think about some of your dear friends who are preachers. I, I can name a, a number of them. People like my dad, my brother, Brother Tim, several friends in the ministry from around the state and around the country. If one of them were arrested... And he might even be executed for preaching the gospel. Paul alludes to that. To live as Christ, to die as gain. He, had a, he was in a straight betwixt two, having a, de- a de- desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Death was a possibility for him, and he knew it, and they knew it. Imagine if one of your preacher friends could be executed for preaching the gospel. How sad would you be? Oh, how heartbreaking that must have been. In verse 12, Paul says, But I would you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out, rather, unto the furtherance of the gospel. The apostle to the Gentiles is arrested. He's incarcerated. And in the midst of his incarceration, the word 
not being able to be bound, went out even in the prison. How familiar they must have been with that concept because this is to the church of the Philippians. What was the jailer's title we commonly refer to from Acts chapter 16? The Philippian jailer. He's reminding them of something that they already know. The word is not bound. It will go. It will have. Pray that it has free course among you and among others. I would that you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me, being arrested, being often beaten, being chained in a cell, whatever the case may be, have happened, have fallen out unto the furtherance of the gospel. So listen, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace, in, in all the palace, people are hearing the word of God, and in other places. Paul gets put in jail, and they take him from trial to trial. What does he do? He preaches. He appeals unto Caesar. What does he do? He preaches. He preaches when he's arrested by the jailer. He preached causing him in Acts to get arrested by the the people that took him into captivity. He appeals to Caesar. He preaches all the way there. He's before Festus. He preaches. Felix, he preaches. Agrippa, he preaches. Caesar, he preaches. In fact, later on in this same book of Philippians, we read, All they of Caesar's household greet thee. Perhaps alluding, this is the second to last verse of the entire epistle, All the saints salute you, chiefly them that are of Caesar's household. He even potentially... We don't take that to be a sarcastic statement. Perhaps he could have. You could imagine something like that coming from me. You know, all the people here who've incarcerated me, we all greet you. That could be a manner of sarcasm. But more than likely, there were people from Caesar's household that had been converted to the gospel through Paul's preaching. Why? Because the word isn't bound. What happened had fallen out unto the furtherance of the gospel. So that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. Now what happens when others see this? If I were arrested for preaching and I converted the jailer, some of Caesar's household, if God through preaching had converted those people, you know what I mean by conversion, you know how it is distinguished from regeneration, you know all of that. But if people are converted through my efforts and I'm in jail, don't you know that other brothers and sisters who watch that suddenly become emboldened? Well, they arrest him and he's out there converting the people in the jail. The gospel is furthered. You know what they did when they heard that? They went and they preached. Many brethren in the Lord waxing confident by my bonds are much more bold to speak the word without fear. People heard it, people saw it, people preached it. Oh, they can't even hold this man down. They put him in jail and he's still preaching to people, converting people. The work goes on even in adversity because God's hand is guiding us. That's the point that I want to demonstrate today. He goes on to say something rather peculiar and it's always made me scratch my head. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife and some of goodwill. They preach of envy and strife. What does that mean? The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. People hated Paul, so they wouldn't preach because it made his captors angry and it made his captivity more harsh and more restricted. And Paul says that there are others who preach out of sincerity and goodwill. And yet, in verse 18, and you listen to this. What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, pretended or for real, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Paul so wanted the gospel to be furthered. He even rejoiced when people pretended to preach to get him in worse trouble just because others heard the name of Jesus. That's how much Paul loved the gospel and loved the church and loved the kingdom and loved the Lord that even if someone were to pretend to preach 
for the purpose of adding to his affliction, Paul rejoiced that the gospel had been preached. Now I want to turn over to the book of Genesis and those two passages, 2 Timothy 2.9 and Philippians 1, serve to remind us that even in our afflictions, God's hand is at work in our lives. Now, there are afflictions that God sends. And remember that we don't preach, what do they call it, therapeutic moral deism? What is therapeutic moral deism? The idea that you know, God just wants you to be happy, and if you're happy, that's the greatest good in the world, and God never does mean things to people. Mean things to people. Well, God is just, and God is holy, and God is God of justice and judgment. Hell is not a very comfortable place. And I read of God sending floods and fires and pillars of fires and snakes into the camp because people complained and opening up the ground and swallowing people alive with the ground and sending leprosies and everything else. No, God can sometimes do that. But that doesn't mean afflictions all come from God. What's the root of afflictions in this world? Sin of Adam. We live in a cursed world. And afflictions are a part of it for a variety of reasons, many different reasons. And as we've recently said back in late March and early April, our response to those should always be the same. We should always humble ourselves. We should always pray. We should always seek His face. But regardless of the cause of the affliction, I want you to understand, child of God, that God is active in your life. As we consider Joseph, I want to ask the question first as we begin to establish some points about him and his situation. What does a life of serving God look like? What does it look like to serve God? Depending on what dispensation of time a person lived in, it might look a little different. The time before Moses serving God looked different. Many of them wandered the world. They were wanderers. They were pilgrims. They were strangers. Men like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You have men such as Abel. He offered a more acceptable sacrifice to God. By faith, God had respect unto Abel and to his sacrifice. His sacrifice even foreshadowed the death of Christ. When God gave the law through Moses, the way that God was served looked a little different than it had looked up until that time. You had a very detailed list of commandments and orders and rules and festivals, feasts, if you will. They couldn't eat certain things. They couldn't wear certain things. They had to wear certain things. The men couldn't cut their beards and mar the corners of their beards. They had to wear their hair a certain way. They were not allowed to put markings in their flesh. They were not allowed to wear mixed garments. They were not allowed to eat things like pork and shrimp. Tempted to make a joke about eating bats, but we'll leave that alone. Worshiping God looked different in that day. Joseph is a man that worships God, and what I'm going to give you is that his way and his story, his walk, looks different than ours. But the same hand that was with him in his walk of obedience is with you in your walk of obedience. What does serving Christ look like today? To us, looks, uh, this service to God looks like being a disciple. Being a disciple. What does a disciple look like? One time, I've told you this story a few times, and it's funny. We were at a parade about, I guess it was about 10 years ago, maybe, maybe 12 years ago, and it was a Christmas parade. Ethan was probably younger than Elijah, and he's marching by, and we were all talking with the other parents from the school, and one of the ladies asked, well, what is it that you do? And I said, well, I'm a pastor. And she says, oh, you don't look like a pastor. <laughs> I said, well, what do pastors look like? I didn't know we had a certain you know, demeanor I have to look like or facial feature that I have to look like. Depending on what denomination you belong to, pastors may look different too. You know, but what does a preacher look like? What does a disciple look like? We talked about that the last few messages. We study, we pray, we assemble if we can. And we know that it's in a pandemic and a lot of people can't risk it. 
understand that. There is absolutely no judgment to those who have health problems that cannot be in the house of God. When the church was persecuted in the days of Saul, do you know what they did? They scattered. Paul was gathered with the church. They came to arrest him to kill him, the Jews. They lowered him out of the window in a basket tied to a rope. You might say, well, where's your faith, Paul? No, no, no. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. God gave us a functioning brain, and he expects us to use it. Be careful for nothing but to be wise and full of discretion. It's the whole point of the book of Proverbs. We need to be wise in the way we deal with this world. When I was a land surveyor, I had to stand on the side of the interstate as 18-wheelers went by. Don't think for a minute I got reckless and careless. We'll just have faith. Uh-uh, that's not how this works. I don't want to live as a fool. I called so many traffic backups back then that I made it on the traffic report on the local radio stations. <laughs> we want to be cautious and careful. But it looks like studying, and it looks like singing, and it looks like assembling when you can assemble. It looks like reading your Bible. It looks like loving your brothers and sisters. It looks like submitting to the powers that be. That's not popular, but it's biblical. Or your local church. Husbands to Christ. Wives to husbands. Children to parents. That's what it looks like. Some of those things have been the same all through the millennia. Some of the things are new to the church age. We baptize. We take communion. It's communion season in our association and it's a time when we can't take communion. And that's heartbreaking to me. Is it heartbreaking to you? It ought to break our hearts. But for wisdom's sake, we postpone it. What's my point? I want you to apply the principles of Joseph's life story to your own life. There was a famous preacher a few years ago that preached a sermon about David and he got to the end of it and his entire point was you're not David. And all the little parrots began to copy what the man had said. You're not David. You're not David. Don't make David and Goliath about you. Well, that might be true. I'm not David. But Hebrews chapter 12 says I'm surrounded by a cloud of witnesses and he went on to list a bunch of these witnesses in that cloud, men like David. In an attempt to strengthen us to run our race with patience. So I, even though, no, we're not Joseph, and yes, Joseph in so many ways points to Jesus, you can look at Joseph and you can learn. You can look at David and you can learn. You can find strength in your life by looking at these faithful men and women of Bible history. In fact, we're commanded to do that. As we already quoted in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, we consider this great cloud of witnesses that surrounds us, it encompasses us, Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Look at all of these faithful saints of God from church history and from the Old Testament, and run with patience the race that is set before you, looking unto chiefly whom? Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, he epitomizes what it means to walk by faith. He sparked in us the faith we have. It is the faith of Christ, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. And so Paul, as he comes to the point here in verse 12 of Hebrews 12, wherefore lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, strengthen yourself by considering the cloud of witnesses in your Savior Jesus. Now this is a sermon that I would really like to get in a big way about, and you might notice that I'm a far more docile preacher today than I usually am. I don't want my air to go 20 feet and get on any of you, okay? The vent that pulls it by is right there, and we're staying subdued. And I keep reminding myself, subdued. In the life of Joseph, 
there's no way that in the 18 minutes that we have <clears throat> remaining that we could share with you the entire life story of Joseph. I think most of us are familiar with it. He was one of the sons of Jacob, and he was a man that, or a boy, I should say, that Joseph favored more than all of, that Jacob favored more than all of Joseph's brethren. In other words, Joseph was the favorite. Now, my children like to accuse one another of being the favorite, and this one's a favorite, and that one's a favorite, and I tell them there are things that make you my favorite in different ways, and there are ways that I spend time with each of them in different ways. Ethan was a man at eight in his mind as far as the way that he approached things, and I could talk to him as if I was talking to a 20-year-old when he was a 10-year-old boy. Lydia and I get into mischief the same ways, and I gave her not only my stunning good looks, but I gave her my sense of humor and my proclivity for getting in trouble. Elijah is a, a tech genius, and we play trumpet for hours together, and Annabelle is my little girl that sat in my lap until probably yesterday, and Mike is my monkey. And so I tell them there are favorite things about every one of you. The problem in Joseph's life is that his dad very clearly made a favorite out of him, and it calls the other brothers to be so jealous of Joseph. God gave Joseph dreams, and he dreams these dreams, and in these dreams there was a very clear message that these brothers and their father and mother would be bowing, making obeisance unto him. Verse 7. And he gave them a, a dream of stars, and he gave, them, he gave Joseph a dream of sheaves. Both dreams showed the family of Joseph bowing before him. And what God was telling them in that is there's coming a day when this man is going to be in charge, and he's going to deliver you. And you're all going to be going to him even for natural deliverance. They interpreted it as, are you going to rule over us? And they became furious and hostile with him. They hated him. There's so many ways that Joseph foreshadows our Lord Jesus. And much like David and other of these men of God, the foreshadowing there is very strong. They hated him without a what? Cause. Literally the words of the psalmist about Jesus that Jesus quotes in his own personal ministry. They hated him without a cause. Jacob had given Joseph a coat of many colors, and throughout the life of Joseph, many times you can find where Joseph has one coat stripped from him and another coat given to him. And I've often wondered if there's a lesson in that, that God is telling us that these coats represent the different phases of Joseph's life. He has a coat of many colors that Jacob had given him, as you know, Joseph is sent by his father in Genesis 37 to check on his brethren. His brethren were out in the field. His father said, who will I send to go and check on them? He says, here am I. And he says, go, I pray thee, see whether it be well with thy brethren and well with the flocks and bring me word again. Now I can imagine that they probably were not happy with 17-year-old, it's believed, Joseph to be sitting at home with Jacob while they're all out there working in the field. And I've got to tell you, that probably wouldn't make me very happy either. But that's not Joseph's fault. That's Jacob's fault. Jacob played favorites because he was the son of his youth, and it caused much trouble and animosity in their home. Joseph finds a man, asks him where they might be. They departed. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. Joseph went after his brethren and found them in Dothan. Not the one in Alabama, by the way. <laughs> they see him afar off. They conspired against him to slay him. Behold, the dreamer cometh. Let's slay him and throw him in a pit and say an evil beast devour him. Reuben, the oldest, hears this, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. Let's just throw him in a pit. But Reuben did this so he could come back later and deliver him back to their father. Reuben has great wisdom, and Reuben has a softer heart. Being the oldest, he's probably seen a lot more, and God's grace was probably a part of his decision-making there. came to pass when Joseph was coming to his brethren, they stripped him of his coat, his coat of many colors. 
might not have been the brightest idea of showing up wearing that particular coat, but he probably didn't have a whole lot else to wear. They took him and they cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat down to eat their bread. They lifted up their eyes, and behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels bearing spicery and balm and myrrh, going to carry it down to Egypt. Now, it is no coincidence that these particular men were here at this moment in human history headed to trade in Egypt. God has a purpose. God has a plan. God's hand is working in the world to place Joseph in Egypt. Now, let me be very clear about it. God does not have his hand in the orchestration of the sin of their wicked hearts. You can look at the cross as a great example of this. God has sent him by his determinate counsel and foreknowledge, but you have taken him by your wicked, wicked hearts and slain him. God gets all the credit for all the goodness and all of his purposes, and man gets credit for all of the sin and all of the wickedness that man has purposed to do. But as it is in our lives so many times, so it was with Joseph, God is working in the midst of this. As we sang today, God moves in a mysterious way. His purposes ripen fast. God is working to thwart, conversely to their intent, to raise Joseph up in a position of authority and deliver him even through delivering him from a series, a series of mishaps that Joseph would be in a place that he would even deliver the brethren who put him into captivity. Now there's prof prophecy of Christ all in this. What, it might have been the book of Hosea. What did it say about the servant of God, the Messiah, that he would be called out of where? Egypt. Where did Christ go as he had to flee from the persecution of King Herod as a baby? Where did Joseph and Mary take him? Where, where did he take him down to? Egypt. Where does Joseph take his brethren down to eventually? Egypt. There's foreshadowing of Christ all through this story. I would encourage you to begin reading this as you go home today and just read it. Read the whole story of Joseph. Read it with your families. That's a good idea. Thanks. Genesis chapter 37, they sell him to these Ishmaelite traders. In other words, they trade, they're trading. For 20 pieces of silver, they betray him, similar to Jesus as Judas betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. By the way, which brother was it that betrayed him for 20 pieces of silver? If you had to guess, which disciple betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver? Judas. Which brother betrayed Joseph? Judah, which is effectively the same word. So many prophecies of Christ and foreshadowings of Christ in the story of Joseph. They sell him for 20 pieces of silver, Joseph, and Reuben returns under the pit and he just rips his clothes. When something bad happens in the Old Testament and even in the time of Christ, men would hear about it and they would rip their clothing, rend their clothing as a sign of disgust. They go back to Jacob and Jacob mourns Joseph and says that he will go down to his grave in sorrow because of this, what he perceived to be dead son. But Joseph's life goes on. Joseph's life goes on. In Genesis chapter 39, chapter 38 has a story of one of the sins of Judah. In chapter 39, Joseph was brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, officer of the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him of the hands of the Ishmaelites, which had brought him down thither. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man. Now, it doesn't take very long for trouble to happen in Joseph's life again. And again, God never has a part of the sin, but God will take advantage of the situation. It happens all the time. God has nothing to do with sin. God will use the situation. God overrules 
the wicked intents and actions of men to further his purposes and glorify himself in the world. And that is what happened with Joseph. Doesn't take long, troubles happened again. What's the trouble? Joseph was favored in this house. This man makes him overseer of all that he had in the house because Joseph was a wise man who had favor with God. And everything that Joseph touched, God made his hand bless. He had the Midas touch, if you will. Potiphar's wife began to lust after Joseph. And when Potiphar was out of the house, she cast her eyes upon Joseph and she said, Lie with me. And he refused. He was a man of integrity. He said, Behold, my master, what if not what is with me in the house? And he hath committed all that he hath to my hand. There's none greater in his house than I, neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph is a man of integrity. She does this day by day, verse 10, over and over and over. She attempts to seduce him. And he hearkened not. Came to pass that she goes in, he goes into this home. She grabs him by his coat. He runs out of the room and he leaves the garment in her hand. He got him out is the term in verse 12. And he got him out. He got him out. I believe in the book of Corinthians where Paul says to flee fornication, this is what he has in mind. In other words, men folk, if there's a woman who's trying to seduce you, it would not be beyond what would be manly and godly, and this can apply to you women too, to physically run out of the room. How entertaining would that be? Some woman tries to seduce you, you come unglued and you're out of the room. Kick the door open, knock it off the hinges, and get out. Flee fornication. Run from it. She takes this garment and she tells everybody, This Hebrew servant came in to mock me. I lifted up my voice and cried. He tried to take advantage of me and he left his garment and fled out. came to pass when the master heard these words, he was filled with anger. And he sends Joseph into the prison. As he was in prison, notice verse 21, The Lord was with Joseph and showed him favor and mercy in the sight of the keeper of the prison. The keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners that were in the prison, and whatsoever they did there, he was the doer of it. In other words, the same thing that happened over and over in Joseph's life happened again. The keeper of the prison looked not to any that was under his hand, because the Lord was with him, and that which he did, the Lord made it to prosper. God's hand is at work in the midst of the problems in his life. Now to make this long story short, and there are several chapters here, the Pharaoh became angry with two servants in his house, his baker and his butler. And these two men are placed in the same ward that Joseph is placed in, and they dream a dream. Joseph goes in and they are sad. He sees that they are see, uh, sad and Joseph asks them, why are you sad? We've had a dream. We can't interpret it. Joseph said, well, dreams belong unto God. I'll interpret it for you. Translate it for me. Now, by the way, this doesn't mean, or tell it to me, and by the way, this doesn't mean that every time we have a dream, there's some deeper meaning to it. In fact, I would argue that hardly ever does that happen in the world today. This is a very special circumstance Sometimes God has given dreams. Sometimes God has given people dreams. One of these men, the butler, had a dream that indicated he would be restored. And the baker had a dream that indicated that he would be executed by Pharaoh. And these things within three days came to pass. The one that would be free, the butler, Joseph, tells him, when you go back, I want you to tell Pharaoh about me. Tell Pharaoh how I work. Tell Pharaoh what I do. Two full years came to pass. The butler had forgotten Joseph. Pharaoh dreams a dream. Now, unlike the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, he has some idea about what had happened in his dream. You know, Nebuchadnezzar says, I had a dream, I can't remember it. Tell it to me and tell me the interpretation. Well, that's a light matter, isn't it? Pharaoh remembers the dream. 
Pharaoh remembers the dream. Joseph is summoned. The butler remembered, oh, sorry. I remember now, there was a Hebrew that could interpret dreams. Pharaoh has two dreams, one of seven fat cows coming out of the river and seven skinny cows come out after and eat them. And then he has a dream of seven ears of corn, nice ears of corn come out of the water and seven ears that are thin come out and devour them. And Pharaoh says, what does this mean? I'm troubled by it. And Joseph says that you're going to have seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. You need to prepare yourself in the years of plenty for the years of famine. Pharaoh points him over this business because he saw that he was a man that was very blessed. And because of that, when the seven years of famine came, and this is where we're going to summarize much for the sake of time, when the seven years of famine came, the children of Israel, these brothers, have no choice but to go to Egypt to survive. There's nothing left to eat in Canaan's land. We have no way to take care of ourselves. We're going to starve, but we've heard that there's food in Egypt. Why was there food in Egypt? Because God worked in the life of a man named Joseph. Despite their own sinfulness, despite the circumstances, despite the situation, despite the adversity, God's hand was at work. Beloved, God's hand is at work in your life today. God is at work in your life. His hand is moving in our lives. He's causing things. He's intervening. He's overruling. These brothers come and Joseph doesn't immediately reveal himself to them and he plays a little game with them. You can read all of that on your own. And then he sends for his father and they have an emotional, joyful, tearful reunion. Jacob reunited with Joseph. Now what's the point in looking at Joseph's life? We've, we've read for you the story of it. Paraphrase much of it. And I'd encourage you to go back and read it all. There's one crucial verse. After Jacob passes away and has blessed all of his sons... Joseph's brothers are afraid. Father's dead. He, he may kill us. He might be angry. What's going to happen to us? They come to Joseph and they say, send a messenger, and they say, Forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren and their sin, for they did it un, they did unto thee evil. And now we pray thee, forgive the trespass of thy servants, of the God of thy father. And Joseph wept when they spake unto him. He cried. I can't find hardly a more humble man in Scripture than Joseph. He had every reason to be cynical and angry and suspicious and cruel and harsh. And he had the civil authority. He could have had them all beheaded. He was second in Egypt only to Pharaoh. It's the only person in the entire nation, the superpower Egypt, that had authority over Joseph. He could have had them all killed. But he cries. His brethren went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we be thy servants. Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? I don't have the authority to judge you. But as for me, you thought evil against me. What did they say? We did evil to you. Yeah, you did. But God meant it unto good to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. Does that mean that God calls their evil? No, God didn't cause their sin. But God intervened. God suffered things. God overrules. God capitalizes. His hand is at work. His purposes ripen fast. That word in one dictionary meant to interpenetrate, as if you're taking a needle and sewing something, meant it for good. God is at work. And throughout this man's life, he did all that he did for the deliverance of his people and this man, Joseph.
Now let's look back briefly as we bring our thoughts today to a close. Genesis chapter 39, as he's placed in prison, do you notice the phrase, and the Lord was with Joseph and he was a prosperous man? What had just happened to him? He was sold as a slave. You want your freedom taken away? This is human trafficking. Freedom is taken away. Sold as a slave. As he is sent in prison, verse 21 of Genesis 39, but the Lord was with Joseph over and over and over. The Lord was with Joseph. I believe those are... That's one of the phrases that Stephen said in his sermon in the book of Acts chapter 7. God was with him. God was working even to the deliverance of his people by placing Joseph in authority over Egypt. By the way, God had another purpose in this. He suffered them to be in that strange land so he could thwart Pharaoh generations later that his name might be declared throughout all the earth. In conclusion today, the thought that I want to leave with you is twofold. Number one, look for God's hand at work. Look for it. I want you to think this week, and those of you that are watching online, think this week. Make note today, tomorrow, Tuesday, all through the week of the ways that you have seen God active in His hand at work. What are some of the things that you have seen God do and you are seeing God do right now? Because the Word is not bound. The Lord is not bound. Like with Joseph, God is at work in our lives. And then finally, be like Joseph. Be like Joseph. Faithful, even when no one was looking. Faithful. Humble. Was there ever a man as humble as Joseph? I can't think of any but Christ. Even Job and his afflictions, which were, albeit, more severe than Joseph's, even Job began to mouth. Joseph just faithfully keeps working. Faithfully doing what he had to do when he was... A slave, he served. When he was a prisoner, he served. And God exalted him every time because God was with him. May we be faithful, humble, loving, hard at work, forgiving, even as Christ, as God for Christ's sake has forgiven us. Despite the circumstances, looking for the hand of God in the circumstances around us. May we be so.